Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Logic Pro 10.5 introduces live loops. This is probably one of the bigger feature updates that's been seen in Logic or in an integrated digital audio workstation in years, probably probably like 20 years or something. I don't know. It's, it's all seemed to be about the same where you just have you just have a multi-track environment that's like a linear starts from zero time and then ends at the end of your project, to, you know, to infinity, let's suggest, but, you know, to your, your multiple minutes. Um, and then in this, you have that multi-track view where you're just kind of layering and stacking these different sections so that they're, they're coming together. And so you can kind of visualize how those sounds are coming together. Um, I think now in opposition to that, there was programs like Ableton, which had non-linear audio production development. Um, and that's kind of complicated to say, but I think it was uh, a different way of visualizing the interface so that you could trigger loops in time in a measure or in a bar and those would trigger appropriately in that measure. And then when you had that, that set up of, you know, a couple loops that would cycle through, you could trigger those on and off and you could kind of create, create changes to whatever that, that sound was. And then you could record that or, or send that out, um, that's kind of, I don't know, that's, a, that's an incomplete way of explaining Ableton. But the idea in Logic Pro 10 here is uh, they're kind of merging those two environments so you have them both available to you in your digital audio workstation space, workstation space at any time. And so uh, the live loops uh, representation that we get in Logic Pro 10 is this grid of uh, kind of chiclet style buttons that you've become accustomed to seeing on an iPhone or something like that. But you have this grid of buttons and then in that uh, you can drop drop in loops that you have. So these real instrument loops uh, and the loop library that you have, you can bring those over and set those up in, in track locations, but you just have this block there. And then next to that, you can grab a different loop or a similar loop and then drag that into the second block. And so what happens is that if you were to tap or click on that loop, you get a play button and it would play that one loop all the way through uh, to the you know to the end of the loop, and then if you were to trigger that stem of loops vertically, it would play all of the loops that you would set up in that vertical column at the same time to play in time with each other, and then it would create um, it would create a mix of music. It's pretty cool. It's a really nice and fast way to kind of demo out ideas, and all this time you're not recording these ideas necessarily. You're just kind of playing them live, starting and stopping them live. And then trying to come up with um, with sort of the the mixed performance of how you'd want these stems to come together in a final production, and so it's really cool. You can have your your drum track in there, or you can have a couple different variations of a drum track if you want to go between a different a different beat or a different uh, velocity of rhythm during the chorus section to the verse section to the bridge. You can kind of break those pieces up. Uh, similarly, like if you go down next to like your bass loops, you could have a, you know a bass line that was started in the intro, and then change during the first verse, and then become you know, I don't know some simplified refrain during the chorus, and then kind of change out again for the for the rest of it, along with the lead, along with you know whatever else or whatever other textures you want to add into your tracking. You can kind of have those laid out in these uh, in these kind of square pads, like a drum pad sort of a thing. And then as you trigger those sounds. Or you can trigger horizontally, too, if you want. Um, the idea is you kind of organize stems of things vertically that you can trigger so you can go to those live. But if you want to mix that up, you can shut everything off and then play those loops individually as they'll play with each other to make new sounds. And so you can be really creative and do a lot of, a lot of interesting things, I think. 
I think it's been pretty cool uh, learning about what I did uh, for training stuff. Is uh, so right now Apple has, um, I think I was mentioned earlier, the the Logic Pro 10.5 uh, system soft or the software is uh, I think $199 to purchase. Uh, if you purchase Logic Pro 10, you get this update included uh, at no cost, which is really cool. But if you have yet to purchase Logic and you're interested in trying out or, or trying to learn some stuff about uh, about this digital audio workstation versus others or, or you know whatever it might be, they've got a 90 day free trial going on right now. So you can go to uh, you can go get this and then try it for the next 90 days in full service and see if you like it. And so. Uh, it's definitely worth it in that capacity. I think that's kind of cool. What's also cool is there are 70 gigabytes of sounds that you can get in a sound library to attach to your Logic Pro 10.5 uh, software. And so with this, they're all royalty-free, all available to use uh, loops and MIDI instruments and sampled instruments that you're uh, you have access to create music with so it's really cool and it's really so much music and sound and all you know and all these loops contained that you have a ton of creative options available to you and right there and that's what's cool is you get so you don't really start off with a, a dearth of an experience once you just get this audio software it comes with 70 gigabytes of of, of instruments of everything for you know bass electric drums organic drums um like any kind of percussive interest, instrument, any kind of synthetic uh, or any kind of synthesizer sound that you want to try and get, you can achieve with it. It's really cool. Um, so, yeah, you can take those and, uh, and throw it in. Uh, you can do the 70 gigabyte download of data and throw that onto an external hard drive now, which is pretty cool. I think for a long time they just had this integrated database where everything had to sit on your main drive, and I think that drove, drove a lot of music producers crazy as they tried to have, um, you know, bigger libraries of, of loops and stuff, but it, it's probably in part because hard drives weren't, weren't fast enough back in the day for that sort of stuff. But now, and you know, in the last many years since uh, like Final Cut has had, had video libraries on external drives, it seems like they should have made the capacity for, for Logic to have, um, have your loop library on an external drive a little easier. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. I'm out on a camping trip right now, and I'm in the back of my truck on the tailgate uh, at a campsite in the Fremont Winema National Forest in South Central Oregon. Pretty sure that's about where it would be. Maybe it's still Central Oregon. I think it's um it's still in the, the mountain area before you drop down into the Great Basin. Uh near the location that I was for the last podcast when I was uh talking about hanging out near that cabin, uh near a meadow. And uh since then I've I've been driving uh kind of around through these uh, forest service roads, uh, checking out different campsites that are laid out in some areas. Uh, a lot of area up here. I think um, I think when I was, I was looking at my watch and it says we're about 4,900 feet. I think I was about 5,200 feet near maybe the higher parts that I was at. But yeah, this is, this is pretty high up here. Um, I think I saw a little bit of snow on the ground in a spot 
a while back when I was driving a little shady spot that hadn't get, uh, been uh, been warmed up, which is, I don't know, it's weird to see in August. Not much snow out here, though, you know, by any means. So um, I think I was up here in the springtime in an area, you know, a different area, kind of further down and lower in elevation. And uh, I think it was early April and I could get a ways up the mountain, but I think I got snowed out really quickly before before you really even break into, you know, the the forest service roads that are up here, even, even the more uh, well-traveled ones just weren't uh, maintained through the winter. Th- these are gravel roads out here. It's like a cinder cone that's crushed up and then spread across the roads. Or uh, I think uh, further to the west, they were still using gravel. I think I crossed over from Klamath County now into Lake County as uh, I've been making my way. I think uh, on the, the map app that I've got, that Onyx off-road app that I've been using a lot out here, it's really been... Uh, uh, a good benefit to have uh, a road map of all of these uh, forest service roads and all the trails and uh, the terrain and stuff that I'm, I'm looking around. But, uh, but yeah, it really helps uh, kind of scan around and, and see what's around you and, and how to get through some places. But I mean, you, you'll have like just real tiny ATV trails. Troublingly though, I think I mentioned they're not really totally differentiated with notes on uh, how bad each different road is. It's just a, a solid green line that says you can drive on it and it might be a, a well-graded uh, gravel road that's wide like a like a highway or it might be a really small and brushy like overgrown power line road that kind of cuts along a property line. That's what I was on yesterday for about a half hour and I was thinking man I probably would have taken that main way around if I had realized it would do this. That's the thing that they get you too, because it'll be a good road for about three miles, you know, or long enough that you're like, ah, I don't really want to turn around. And then it'll kind of gradually creep in and creep in more slowly. As I, I suppose less and less people have gone out as far as that to keep the road uh, well traveled and maintained. But yeah, you get that that the ruts of the tires, and then you get the center strip where you're getting like a bunch of seedlings of trees, these evergreen trees that are growing up about two feet, three feet or so, and they haven't really been topped off or knocked over by other uh, trucks going through. Maybe there's, I don't know, higher clearance vehicles that go through most of the time, but uh, even in this truck, it's uh, I'm still just kind of <laughs> scraping across the, the bottom of uh, these tiny little seedlings that are all over the place. Um, so, I don't know, it's okay. It's okay kind of floating around, but I think I made it around like 70 miles or so from the last place that I was camping, and I'm now uh, up in the hills at an area out by uh, a big lake. Well, I think it's a reservoir, and I think this area, there's like kind of a natural depression. It's only, I don't know, 20, 25 feet lower, but I think what they've done is they've dammed up an area down from here, and then I've created a reservoir up here, I think, to supply water to the town and farmland that's down lower in elevation from here, um, which is kind of cool. It's interesting how it's uh, sort of laid out like this up here, but I've been walking around up here for a little bit, and I think I'm the only person up here in this area. Um, I think there's a uh, like a Forest Service campground that's a little ways over. It's pretty undeveloped, too. There's a, I think there's like, I don't, I don't think there's running water there. I think there's a boat ramp or something. That's about it. And there's signs that give you information. Really out here, though, it's just it's just undeveloped camping. Um, but there's a picnic table at the spot I'm at. Pretty big rock pile fireplace with a fire grate over it. Uh, it looks like it was a hunting camp up here. I see uh, I see a couple uh, log poles that are stretched across a tree at probably 12 feet and 8 feet or so. Uh, I think that's what they use when, uh, like in the fall when they start doing their 
when hunting season comes into effect and I think this area gets a little more flooded out with, uh, with people that have drawn tags to go mule deer hunting. Um, and I think if they, if they fill their tag, then they'll use these poles to, I guess, like prep the meat as it's, uh, as they get it back into camp. But, uh, it's a cool little camp. It's a big area too. It's, it's a, there's a swing too. There's like a rope swing with a wood board at the bottom that you sit on. You can swing around a, a pine tree up here. A lot of pine trees. What, is it lodgepole pine? Is that what it's called? I think that's what I saw on a sign that said, this is an experimental forest. And they're, you know, they're testing you know, the regrowth of uh, a lodgepole pine. I think I see what they're talking about. They're just real straight, real thin, not a lot of curvatures and stuff. So I figure like what they do is, or like a lot of the, the I don't know, log houses or you know poles that we see are are from trees like this pretty exciting wow uh, but uh, i've been walking around out here uh still a good bit of trees in this area but uh, a little bit further out for me like i was saying is that lake bed but it's it's really dry right now there's kind of like a creek flowing through part of the center of it i'm sure you probably fill it up in the winter time i gotta remember it's august too and if i remember right it wasn't a heavy rain year is that true it seemed really rainy this winter, but if I remember them talking about the watershed, they were still talking about how it's sort of a drought year again. Take a sip of my cold coffee that I made up earlier. I got my AeroPress out with me, and then I picked up a, another Jetboil. I've had one years ago. Jetboils are like one of the best uh, camping inventions that have been around for a while. If you don't have a good uh, portable stove and you're going out a lot, it's it really makes things a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. Um but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've gone uh, without making a fire anytime this year. And in the summertime out here, I keep seeing signs, as I've kind of learned in the past too, that uh, during fire season, there's there's really like no no good way uh, or at least no legal way to have an open fire pit, you know, like a rock pit with some logs in it, I think is uh, frowned upon up here. I think they've had a lot of forest fires and stuff up here. Um from from stuff like that but uh but yeah i've uh i've really kind of tried to avoid making campfires but for circumstances where i feel like i'd really need it in the winter time i have more fun with that sort of stuff but what i've noticed the most with uh with camping for multiple days and setting up campfires is that is that you really get sooty and you get dirty a lot faster you, you know your your clothes are kind of impregnated with the smell of uh like a wet smoke and stuff and uh and i don't i I've not really appreciated the way I feel with that. So, uh, so yeah, I've kind of found that um, by doing just a couple lighter things and also by following the fire regulation rules, um, I can kind of uh, stay a little bit more comfortable while I'm out camping and stuff. So I'm not really in the backcountry. I'm not doing like a big, um, a big expedition hike backpacking deep into the wilderness or anything. I've got my truck here. I've got a cooler. I've got a stove and all that stuff. But, uh, but even when I'm out, camping or backpacking and stuff the jet boil is just like it's a pound or less or something i don't know it's great it's just uh, an easy thing to carry and and uh and travel around with um so yeah i lit it up this morning made my coffee i got my aeropress with me which i think is probably my preferred camping coffee making method if you haven't had an aeropress um it's probably one of the the easier and well i don't know it's been it's been fine to make a single cup of coffee now if you got like four people and you want to have a lot of coffee at the same time might not be a great solution it's pretty tough you can kind of do one cup of coffee at a time for me out here it works great you can throw in a scoop it's kind of like plastic i think it's made by aerobe you know the, you know when you were in, in elementary school and you play frisbee 
It was like an Aerobee Frisbee. They make like Frisbees. I think they're like a plastics company and they try and find different uses for these plastics that they're creating. So I guess it's some high temperature plastic and it's a coffee maker. Wow. So you get these little filters you throw them in. You can probably look it up online and figure out what an AeroPress is. But yeah, filled up my coffee and stuff and uh, made my cup and my camping cup and threw some half and half in there that I had in the cooler. And it's already it's already cold. So it's okay. But uh, other camping uh, tools that I found super useful was, uh, like I was saying, I don't really have a heater or I don't have a fireplace that I'm using or, you know, like a, a fire ring or I'm not bringing wood with me. Uh through this time of year, but what I did pick up is uh, is just like a portable propane heater. I've seen these used by a couple other people before, but it's sort of the size of a briefcase or so, and it's it takes one of those uh, those portable green propane pans you can pick up for three or four bucks at a at a store, and you throw that in there, you light the pilot light, and then it's got this uh, like ceramic pad that I don't know throws off heat. Uh, so it's great to have, and that's really like my fireplace replacement, as exciting as that sounds. But it's pretty safe, working really well, been really uh, stable and, and easy to use. But yeah, I got my tailgate down, and I've got that um, that heater going. And at night, it's a uh, it's about as good as a fire, you know. And you don't have any of the uh, the exhaust or the smoke and stuff coming off of it. So uh, it's a nice, clean heat source and stuff. And it's fun too if you want to move. You're like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I like my camp, but let's walk out over here, like what I did last night. Is a uh, I shut the heater off while I was after I made dinner and I was sitting at my truck and then I walked out probably about a hundred yards into that open area as you're getting near the edge of the the lake bed and then I sat down over there and then kicked the heater on again boom I'm set up and hanging out and warm and uh, yeah it it gets cold up here at night really I think the last last couple of days have been kind of chilly well at least like uh, yesterday was pretty cold for I don't know a day in August uh, you think it'd be you think it'd be a hot one, but, uh, but yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool yesterday. I think it was probably like 73 degrees as a high. It was really comfortable or I appreciated that as opposed to the heat. Like I was, I was knocked out by the heat. I think it was like around a hundred, uh, when I was out in the John Day area a few weeks back and man, yeah, I was just wiped out by that. But, uh, it, you know, it was, I don't know, it was a hundred degrees. I'm driving around my truck with the windows down. I don't have AC in this thing. And I just, uh, like <laughs> I have this, my mask, right. It's a gator. You know, everybody's got a mask nowadays. So I've got one of these gators and I would just constantly be like dunking that in ice water and then like using that to cool off. But man, uh, yeah. Throwing that around your neck when it's covered in ice water is a great way to cool off. I think that was, you know, like some, I don't know, some, uh, some like gimmicky product back in the early two thousands was something like that where you'd, uh, you'd fill up like some, some thing, wrap it around your neck and it had ice cubes and water in it. You go on a walk and stay cool in the summer. Another sip of cold coffee, but yeah, having this heater out here has been great. Uh, going out, uh, to anywhere you want, setting up a chair, setting up a heater. It's a pretty comfortable way to, to do some stuff and it works. Works well for doing some photo stuff too, because you can just kind of take off from where you're at, take your camera bag, take this little heater, and then uh, set up your tripod, sit down, set up your camera stuff, get your shots ready for like that evening time, and you can sit there pretty comfortably and just uh, you know stay warm and stay pretty comfortable. And um, uh, I wouldn't really take it too far out, you know, if I was uh, if I was traveling uh, pretty far. But if it's uh, if it's just kind of like a short short little jaunt down to a spot where I'm fishing or uh, where I'm uh, going to be taking some photos. It seems like it's been working pretty good for that sort of stuff, but 
Um, but yeah, kind of fun having uh, a couple of things around. I brought, uh, brought a few other things, but I don't know. I'll probably get into the other camp stuff later. Um, it's been pretty smooth, though, camping out here and uh, traveling around. I've been trying to do uh, some more rock hounding stuff. Uh, I was learning about uh, some of the privileges that you have on public lands to do rock hounding. It's cool. You can look this up yourselves, too. But uh, but I think there's... Uh, uh, like rock hunting, it's like, I don't know, the, the hobby of going around and collecting interesting rocks that you find, uh, you know, out while you're traveling around. And so uh, legally, you still get to pick those things up from public land areas, unless there's some specific restriction in that area. But uh, but yeah, you can go around and do rock hunting all you want. So I think it's it's most common stones that you can, you can just pick up uh, with no, or, you know, it's just your right on public land to pick up. Uh, the the rocks that you come past. So it, it's been kind of cool going around and picking up. Um, up here, I've been seeing a bunch of um, obsidian in raw form and stuff, which, which is pretty cool. Uh, coming across some jasper, some agate, some quartz, some petrified wood. That's been cool. I think last week I found a chunk of petrified wood when I was walking around, and I thought, hey, nice, cool. I like this. And uh, there's some areas in Oregon where there's more of that than uh, than others i think that it was part of part of the land development of, of how i guess how much wood would have been trapped quickly under mud is that what it is i don't know there's some there's some like specific process of how petrified wood gets created from uh really old trees and you know like, uh, how that that uh, mineral change happens i was learning about agate too agates from wood also i didn't really understand this but i think agates from when uh when a piece of wood is buried in lava from a volcanic flow. Someone that knows about rocks really would probably be able to tell me more quickly, but uh, I think from something I was understanding recently, if you don't listen to it, check out the Meat Eater podcast. There's a bunch of really good stuff on there. Uh, I think it's hosted by Steve Ranella, and uh, they normally have like uh, some really good guests on to talk about. Uh, most of the time it's through the focus through the lens of uh, like hunting trips and stuff. But really I've learned so much about uh, like outdoors, outdoor management. Uh, and then, you know, including stuff like this, like rock hounding and geology and uh, all sorts of like uh, intersectional uh, ideas that are about the uh, outdoors and outdoorsmanship. So really appreciated uh, kind of some of the things I've learned from that. But one of the things I learned from that from an episode, I think maybe back in early May was about uh, some rock hunting stuff that they were doing where they were going out looking for agate and I think they were out in the Yellowstone Valley where they were looking for agate. One of the things that they explained is from from one of the the old uh, Yellowstone eruptions, uh, there was a flow of magma that covered a forest or you know a lot of trees. And then what would happen is that once that wood was encased in magma, the wood, the carbon wood, would burn away, and then it would leave a pocket where that wood had been. And then over a long amount of time, water, groundwater, would seep into that pocket and then evaporate out. But as it would seep in, it would bring a certain set of minerals in it. And then as that mineral deposit would build, it would build an agate. And that's how you get these agate stones. I have this one at home that's, that's it looks like a... It looks like an onion almost, or, or like if you've ever seen the cross section of a really big piece of hail. It's sort of like that, where it's got all these different layers to it that have been created um, at different times, at different stages as it developed. But it was pretty cool, uh, yeah, uh, going around and trying and find some agate and uh, really cool stuff, uh, or like really cool colors, really cool, uh, like, I don't know, just the, the, 
the clarity of some of them is, is awesome. It's really cool. Um, I think a little further out from here, you can start uh, finding opal, which is cool. I don't think I've really found a lot of opal. I've heard a lot about that uh, in the, I think, I think it's more common and more popular like out in Nevada. I think like northwestern Nevada is pretty common for uh, finding opal or uh, deposits of opal rocks in that area. And, and that's sort of similar to an agate, at least in the look of, of that kind of clear, uh, crystally uh, look of a rock, which uh, is, I don't know, it's always fun to find. Um, but I've been traveling around up here, and it's kind of high country up here. But uh, I've been traveling around and, yeah, trying to do some rock counting stuff, trying to pick up some different things. And you really can find a, a lot if you're keeping your eyes to the ground and uh, picking up pieces and chips and chunks of, uh, of different rocks and stuff. And then you kind of collect through them and see what you got and what you want to keep and stuff. But as I was understanding the rules of rock counting, you can get into, I think it's 25 pounds of rock a day from BLM land across Oregon. And I believe it's 10 pounds of rock per day from national forest land. Really, that's a lot of rock. Also, in addition to that, you can pick up one 25-pound or more specific specimen from, I think, each location. So, like, if you find, like, one big rock that's, I don't know, uh, 50 pounds or 30 pounds or something like that, you can you can take that rock as well and not uh, be in violation of your rock-hounding picking limits pretty pretty fun but uh it's cool yeah you can go around and pick up a lot of stuff and then i think it's with a maximum of 250 pounds collected from each uh each property management location uh through a year so you can pick up 250 pounds of rocks uh over the course of a year and i think well uh, yeah yeah you can't do that in a day i suppose some of the information sort of um sort of states both things so I'm not really sure which one it is, but uh, from what I have understood from from looking at the uh, National Forest Service website, uh, I think there's some information about rock hounding in Oregon and uh, and some of the areas that I was going to. But yeah, it was uh, 25 pounds a day on BLM, 10 pounds a day on National Forest land, and uh, and yeah, that's cool. That's a lot. You can also go around and pick up firewood, which I didn't really know about. Um, you, you need like a, a a a permit in some circumstances if you're trying to collect it commercially, but if you're collecting it for private personal use, even just like home use, uh, there's a lot of wood that you can uh, pick up from managed public lands. Some of them, I think, are there's like some specific areas where they want you to be doing that and some specific areas where they don't want you to be doing that. I think if it's, um, well, I'm not sure, not all downed wood, but I think if, if, a, if it's down, and it's collectible. I think you can collect that uh, in, in a lot of areas. Um, so, yeah, I went through, like in the springtime, I went through an area of BLM land and I filled up my truck with uh, with a bunch of uh, logs that had been taken down and I think stacked up in an area. And, yeah, I just loaded up my truck and I have firewood for a while. You can get like a, a I think you can get, it's, it's, it's a limit similar to the rock counting stuff where you can get like a couple cords of wood a year and uh, collect that for personal home use. I think if you're trying to sell firewood, then you have to go through the BLM or the Forest Service to get a permit for the area where you're going to be doing wood cutting. I've only just picked up downed wood that you would pick up kind of like for a campfire or something like, you know, if you're going around trying to pick up firewood for a camp. Um, 
it's kind of a similar process to that. I'm not really like uh, cutting down fresh trees and aging them, but uh, but there's there's a qualification for that too. You can go around and uh, if it's a, a specifically designated area for that kind of a thing, uh, you can go around and and actually you know use a tool and cut down a tree and process it and take it home and uh, cover up your stump or something like that. And, you know, naturalize the stump that you cut. But uh, but yeah, there's there's a, a lot of stuff you can do out on public land. I wasn't really quite quite aware of in in uh in every way but um yeah it's been cool being out here doing some rock counting stuff trying to find uh some some cool pieces really a lot of obsidian is what i've been finding which has been fun uh a lot of a lot of like volcanic rock stuff out here and some of them are cool you know but they're not they're not um like uh i don't know they're not like a gem or anything it's just like you know a basalt stone from a volcano uh but it's cool. Yeah, these uh, rock hunting stuff has been pretty good. You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. A couple updates of some of the stuff that I've been uh, putting together. You know, I got a Gitzo. I got a Gitzo tripod. It's kind of cool. I don't know if you guys know about that. There's there's a couple different tripod manufacturers. Seems to be the popular ones in the United States amongst the pro photography crowd. But I'm sure there's lots of other stuff out there. And I know, you know, it, it, get, it, uh, uh, it gets hyped. It gets hyped too much. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff with three legs that works great for tripods. But I was on Craigslist. I was looking around. I was perusing. I found this super good deal on this vintage Gitzo. It was this one built in France. I think since then they, uh, they, they, they moved to Italy. I think now they're an Italian brand. Like it will say made in Italy. These older ones, it says made in France. I think it's like Gitzhopper. Maybe it was a German guy. That's what it sounds like, Gitzhaber. But, uh, yeah, I guess it turned into Gitzo as uh, the tripod name when they started uh, started doing that. But I got this weekend performance tripod. It's this kind of silly, small travel tripod. I think it's about 18 inches tall or so. And it's got these uh, these steel legs. It's got an extendable set of aluminum tubes that run out. And it gets real flimsy, like when you get it above waist height as a tripod. So it seems like it'll be kind of an interesting sort of backup uh, travel tripod, but it's real sturdy or, you know, it's real set. It's a Gitzo. It's a good tripod. It's well manufactured, even though it's, you know, 35 years old. Now. I think it was probably made in the early eighties. Uh, and I bought it from this, uh, this old hobbyist photographer guy out here in Oregon. I got it for a steal. I was thinking that uh, primarily that's a big reason to pick it up is if I buy it for the price it's listed at, I could list it now and get more than that much money. I could flip it and get a, you know, a good return on the investment that I put into it. And I could hang out, mess with the tripod for a week or two put it up online, have that thing sell, and I could make more cash off of it than what I paid for it. You know, the cool thing also is I got this, uh, you know, the set of Gitzo legs. Those are nice, but with it and kind of the, the secret prize that might almost be worth more than that is I got this, uh, this 
Leets? Lights? Leica? It's that kind of side Leica name and brand. You know, there's the Leica cameras, but I guess a lot of their gear, maybe even some of their other stuff, it was kind of sort of bought or half bought or bought out. It was, or there's two guys. There's like the Leica guy, and then there was this Leitz guy, this L L E I T Z guy. And they both kind of owned Leica. So there's sort of these, these kind of confused names around some of this stuff. But it's this, uh, this Leitz ball head, this tripod ball head. And it's really nice. It's kind of this, uh, this brushed aluminum finish on it and it's got the ball head on the top with this wing nut that swings closed to lock uh to lock your tripod wherever you put it but it looks like a really tight nice little um little tripod setup especially great for a traveler or someone that was shooting with uh, a light film setup it would be awesome so i know it's a little bit of the away from the direction that i've been moving with some of the photography equipment i've been procuring recently uh, but it feels kind of good it's cool having a vintage gitzo tripod around and it feels good, too, that I could sell it. Or I could make some bucks back from it if I needed to. Um, but it's kind of fun having that second tripod around. I've been trying to think of more more long exposure, more f- fine art, landscape stuff. And, um, you know, like, I think I may- maybe mentioned a minute ago, in the U.S., there's, like, there's two big tripod brands. There's, there's Manfrotto, which is what I bought the last few times around. Right now I have a, a, a set of carbon fiber, what is it, like the mag fiber set of legs for my man my manfrotto tripod and those are great those are like the best tripod legs they're outstanding and then i've got this photo head that goes on top of it which is acceptable but it's it's got that three-way locking head i think i really want to get something a little simpler more like a ball head or something that's just a little bit more flexible for some of my needs but really it's just this quick release plate system that's on top of the manfrotto and it just really doesn't seem to work for me all that much I guess it does enough. It works as much as I use it, probably more than that. Maybe I can just throw that Leica ball head on there. <laughs> Doesn't seem to match up super well. Uh, but if I, uh, if I get a chance to, I guess why not? So it's kind of cool. I've been messing around with that. I, was in, I don't know. I've been a fan of like the, the Gitzo tripod brand stuff for a long time, and I think it's kind of cool to mess around with that. But the way that they're built, it's just super sturdy. It's cool. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.